Thank you for leading us. Last week we began a short series on growing an authentic community and growing a church that is what God wants. Growing a church that's real. Not one that just goes through the motions, but is really one the Spirit is working and and, uh, producing in us fruit. Producing in us that which God would long for. And that's their desire. And we talked about being the redeemed community last week. And what does that mean a little bit? And uh, this morning I'd like to talk about something that is so significant as we go about the rest of the, uh, this series as well. Is as a redeemed community, there's a lot of things we can do. A lot of things we can focus on. And it's interesting that as we've gone... Um, through my years of ministry. These are some of the things I've heard, some of the exhortations I've received. Remember one particular church meeting where this phrase was communicated. We need to run the church like a business. We need to promote it better. We need to make sure financially at the end of the year that we've made something. Our staff, the staff numbers, in other words, when the staff is there, are the numbers coming in? Is, is the youth pastor bringing numbers in? Is the children's ministry director bringing numbers in? And if they're not, we need to go elsewhere. So it's about the numbers. That's one of the things I've heard. I've heard this. You're a professional. You need to make sure you're in the office on certain hours. I've actually even heard this. Make sure you park in front so we know you're there. Interesting, huh? Make sure you dress the part. You should be in a three-piece suit. After all, you're professional. Then I've heard the other side. You know what? You're in a different generation. There's a comfort level. I think you should wear a t-shirt and jeans. Sandals are okay. You see, you need to be relevant. I guess the last time I checked, I'm supposed to get out of the way. Is what I'm supposed to do, so I think I'll take uh, that direction, but... Then I've heard the fact that, you know what, when I go Sunday morning, I'm not entertained. We need to perform better. A little more fog, a little more light action, and maybe maybe people will be coming. In other words, if we give them what they want, we'll increase the numbers. I've heard we need better, not here, thank God. I've heard we, I've heard we need better, more programming. We need to keep up or ahead of where other churches are doing. So... What do we as a church focus on? What do we as believers focus on? What is the main thing that we are to be focused on? Now on a personal level, we can clearly focus on many things in our life. And so as I'm talking about the uh, redeemed community, the church, we also need to talk about first and foremost, understand it's a personal level as well. So don't skip by and push it off on everyone else. But to be an authentic community, there needs to be a laser-like focus on two things. If there aren't, we become far less than what God desires. If you go to Ezekiel 36, I'd like to point out the first one. The first thing that the church, God's redeemed community, is to have a laser-like focus on is His glory. Ezekiel 36, verse 16 to 23. God's talking to his people. Now, not 
some other group, his people. Ezekiel the prophet says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds I judged them. And when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which, have profa- which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now the nation of Israel, if we were to study their history up to this point, they'd had good kings in the past. They lived in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had received God's favor. But they themselves had proved unworthy to inhabit this land that God had promised. And it is to this prophet, Ezekiel, God's given this prophecy. And it's to this that this prophet turns, giving reasons why God's judgment was necessary. The prophet speaks of God's motivation for his wrath in the past. Now, the scriptures describe many different purposes of God. There is, however, one above all others. It's the cause he is most passionate about, glorifying his name. It is the driving force behind God's bringing about this new covenant, the driving force between this good news God acts, always acts, with glory in his mind. His first allegiance, believe it or not, is not to loving you. His first allegiance is to his glory. He says through the prophet Isaiah, I will not yield my glory to another. I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to say, hey, you have a little of it. He says, I'm not going to yield my glory to another. As a matter of fact, God says, my primary allegiance is that I would be glorified among the nations. We kind of get that backwards, don't we? If you look at verse 20 and 21, there's two phrases that are kind of key points to not just the passage I read, but as we continue to read throughout Ezekiel, that are the real issue. It's why God's indictment is revealed against Israel. I want you to look at verse 20 and 21. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. If you go to verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. If you go down to verse 22, they, uh, which you have profaned among the nations. Verse 23, my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Sounds like God's pretty concerned about this whole idea of profaning his name. The word profane is an interesting word. It means to stab or to wound. And when we talk about God's name, we're talking about his reputation, his character, 
So if you literally put the definitions together, you've wounded my reputation, you've wounded my character, you've stabbed my character. You've made it something it's not. You've communicated to the nations around you something that's not true. You say you love me, you say you follow me, but then you defile yourself with idols, and when you do that, you've profaned my name. God's response to that indictment, I poured out my wrath, I disperse them, I judge them, I will still do something. It's not for you, Israel, we could say it's not for us either, that I'm doing this. It's for the sake of my name. It's for my sake that you're being judged. You see, God's primary allegiance is to his glory, which brings us to us a little bit more. How does this play out in our lives? Let me ask a question. Your story, God's story, are they about the same thing? Are they about his glory? How are you living your life? I mean, is it kind of all you want and, and, and you want circumstances to benefit you? And if it comes to ministry, if it's convenient for you, if it comes to witnessing, if the perfect opportunity arises, I mean, your story, your journey, is, this, is it the same as God's? Because God's story is about his glory. It's about his name being honored among all people. God acts first and foremost with his glory in mind. You see, it's about his glory more than you being fixed. It's about his glory more than you being healed. It's about his glory more than you being released from your trials. All those things are desirable, I get it. All those things we would love to experience but they're the second thing. They're not the primary thing. The primary thing is he'd be glorified in the midst of all those things. It's about living our lives in such a way that those around us are drawn to see the reality of God more clearly. Let's even bring this down more to uh, an example. This is a specific example about a couple I know. I'm kind of throwing a lot of counseling sessions into one here. Let's say you have a husband and wife in conflict. They've been married 15 years. And after 15 years, the wife announces she wants a divorce. She wants to claim custody of the children. Understandably, the husband is scared. Part of him's enraged. And he's desperate. The pain is real. What would it mean to help this couple? I mean, what would it look like to together to stir them in the deepest places? What would it look like to steer this couple to the thing that would help them most? You see, immediately, we would think, what could this man do to win this wife back? Or, where did he fail that he could do things differently? I have to admit, my initial energy over the years would be directed towards saving their marriage to say the right thing, to reconcile them, to have the right verse, to have the right plan. And there'd be a pressure when I met with them, don't screw this up, man. If you say the wrong thing, that could be it. And admittedly, that was where I predominantly put my energies. But now I'm stirred by something greater. And it's what absolutely gives this marriage the best chance. But this vision is higher than just saving the marriage. It's a vision that really one spouse could reach 
and the other could not block. One spouse may leave. And if that other spouse is living predominantly just to save the marriage, they're going to look at their life and say, I failed. Because they didn't keep the main thing the main thing. C.S. Lewis says, put first things first and second things are thrown in. You put second things first, you lose both first and second things. Keep the main thing the main thing. So as I consider this couple, I want them to be in the flow of God's purposes throughout history. I want them to focus in that difficult moment on the main thing. Winning his wife back and preserving his family are, of course, incredibly important and rightfully desired with great passion. And yes, there's techniques and there's help for couples to get there, but those are second things. And they're good, but they're not the first thing. You see, that couple was not placed on earth to be each other's spouse. They were placed on earth to glorify God. That's why you and I are placed on this earth. We've been placed here to glorify God, to reflect his character. We're to reflect by the way we live that there's a glorious God who reigns. That's the first thing, to glorify God in every circumstance and by modeling what he's like. And for this couple, this means coming before God and saying, yes, our marriage is in disarray. Yes, it doesn't look good right now. But as a husband, what can I do to glorify you? What would bring you pleasure? What would bring you honor? Because there's no guarantee my wife will respond. And from the wife's, she might be in the same boat. I'm tired of all this. I want to leave. There's everything within me that's tired of fighting. But God, what would glorify you? Because that's the main thing. And the best chance for their marriage is when both focus on glorifying God. Then they're able to look in his word and say, you know what, I need to do this. First and foremost, because it would bring you glory. And then I believe you that when I do this, this will also help my marriage. You see, it's God glorifying when we live out his truth that it's been revealed to us. But our primary motive, first and foremost, is that God would be glorified. And that really runs in the face of things. Because we're a technique-oriented people. We want to have something to say about it. And I know this is a different perspective, but I submit to you it should be the church's focus. As a redeemed community, this is where we're to go. This is where we're to help each other go. So listen to the Spirit, to speak through His Word. This must be this couple's focus if they're to stay in the flow of God's purposes. It likewise, it needs to be the church's focus if we're to stay in the flow of God's purposes. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's this focus God's Spirit continually is stirring within us. It's the first focus. Now, if I was to ask you, can we be deceived? Everybody here would say, well, yeah. We, one reason is we've probably been deceived before. Uh, the other reason Scripture warns us you can be deceived. If I were to ask you, can you deceive yourself? We'd shake our head. Scripture tells us and experience tells us. And the reason I ask those questions is one of the, I think, great challenges of God's church, of the redeemed community, is to so speak into each other's life and to journey alongside each other 
that we can ask those questions. Are you pursuing God's glory? Check yourself. What's your motive for doing this? Why are you acting like you're acting? I know you wanted to start this, or I know you wanted to do this, and I know you're talking about this. Let me ask you, let's go below the surface a little bit. What's your motivation? You can't ask that when you have people at arm's length. That you feel like you're, they're invading your turf. But when we come alongside each other, when there's a connectedness in spiritual things, and we can go below the surface, we can begin to ask each other those things. Which are the main things? How are you seeking to glorify God in this situation? Back to Ezekiel, God's purpose in this whole thing. We're told why did God act the way he did. What was ultimately at stake is his glory. That's why he carried out his wrath. That's why his indictment was what it is. What it is. And as you and I look forward and we're like, oh, why would God carry out his wrath the way he did because it's for a higher purpose than we would perceive. It's for his glory. And while we pursue happiness, we pursue escape from trials, we often think that God's purposes might be boring. Or, worse yet, they might hinder our happiness. I mean, if I seek God's glory, I mean, that means i got to forget all these other things that I think are really neat. And so we begin to build an image of our mind of what it's like. I appreciate what John Piper writes because I think he sums up the erroneous thought of, of this. He says, the wonder of the gospel and the most freeing discovery this sinner has ever made is that God's deepest commitment to be glorified and my deepest longing to be satisfied are not in conflict. But in fact, they find simultaneous consummation in his display of and my delight in the glory of God. What Piper is saying, what I believe the scripture is saying is living for God's glory and, and keeping his glory primary does not mean you're losing joy, does not mean it's hindering your happiness. As a matter of fact, as you pursue that's where you find joy. That's where you find real delight. It's not either or. God's not saying, hey, quit being happy. Start being downcast and pursue my glory. That's not it at all. It's just there we find our greatest delight. It's there we really find joy. But so many don't find it because they don't live with his glory in mind. It's not his primary focus. I guess you could put it this way. Many are willing to be God-centered as long as they think that God is man-centered. Let me say it again. Many are okay with being God-centered as long as they feel that God is being man-centered. In other words, as long as they feel that God is looking out for me first, as long as that God is all about my happiness, then I'll be God-centered. But that's not how we're to live. We're to live with a God-centeredness, focus on God's glory above all things. We are to glorify God, seek to please Him above all things, Make God shine. Put the spotlight on Him. Might there be an awareness, a worship of His beauty and perfections. Recognize who He is and respond in humility and brokenness for our focus must be on His glory. Well, that's one of the focuses. 
there's a second thing God's community must focus on. We need to be laser-like in our focus on His Son. Go to Hebrews 1. Let's unpack this a little bit. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, Ezekiel being one of them, in many, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. This is a great passage. It, it, it says, first of all, that God narrowed the spotlight. God had spoken through the prophets in the past and in many portions, in many ways, God spoke. But in these last days, he's spoken through his son. He narrowed the focus. In other words, there's a sharp, clear way, a new and living way that we are to focus, and that is on Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh, John writes, and lived for a while among us. John then says, we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The spotlight narrowed on Jesus Christ as he came to earth. Now go to Hebrews 10, and let's see how this played out. Continues to play out, I should say. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Because of the Son, because of Jesus Christ and Him coming and what He accomplished, author of Hebrews writes, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, there's no other way, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we're told that Jesus Christ, this great high priest, opened this new and living way. We focus on Christ because he's done something for us we couldn't do ourselves. We call it the good news of the gospel. And this good news transforms our lives. It permeates every area of our lives. You see, because of what Christ has done, he's given us a new purity. We're told we're justified. We're told we're redeemed, we're cleansed, we're forgiven. We've been given a new purity. We've been given a new identity. Colossians, my life is now hidden in God. We have a new identity. It's in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. Because of what Jesus did, we have a new power. God's Spirit in our life. Matter of fact, Romans 8, 3-4 through Says it better than I could ever say it. Paul writing to a church in Rome. 
Romans 8, 3 through 4, writes this, For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I could just keep reading and reading. The point is, God's given us a new power. That power is the Holy Spirit. And he's also given us a new inclination. And this is what's important as well. What's that inclination? To glorify him. To pursue his will. He's given us a new nature. It's planted by God. It's sustained by God. As a Christian, you have a new purity. You have a new identity. You have a new power. You have a new inclination. The question on the table is, okay, I hear that. I got all these things. Why on earth do I still struggle with sin? Why is there such a wrestling match if all those things are true? Because we still have that old fleshly nature battling against us. But hear this, when these new realities are released in our lives, they're more powerful than the sinful nature. When we submit to the Spirit of God and we walk in the reality of the new power in our life, the new purity, the new inclination, when we walk in the reality of our new identity, that's more powerful than the sinful nature. And it's all because of Christ, and this is no small thing. Without the focus on Christ, we have no resources to live victoriously. And when we focus on Christ, we realize something very, very significant. He calls us to himself, and then he calls us to anchor in him. Both necessary to live out the realities of our new nature. First of all, according to Hebrews in verse 22, back to Hebrews 10, we're called to an intimacy. Let us draw near to God. The unthinkable thing, this deity we perceived as afar, the invitation now, because we focus on Christ, the Son, this great high priest who through his blood has made it possible to approach him, we're invited to draw near to God. It's an invitation to intimacy. John Ortberg tells an account of a friend who called him and asked him a question. He says, John, I'm wondering what do I need to do to remain spiritually healthy? I'm concerned. Ortberg answered, ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. The man said, okay, what's next? Ortberg said, there is nothing else. Ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. You know what the greatest enemy, enemy to intimacy with God is? Activity for God. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. When we get so busy doing for God that we forget to spend intimate time with God, we forget the whole point. We've been called to Him first. To a growing intimacy. To the church. Revelation 2, God said, you forgot something, by the way. Church in Ephesus, you got solid doctrine, your ministry's kicking it, it's a well-oiled machine, all that's going really, really well. But in all that, you forgot something, your first love. You forgot the main thing, which is a growing and a deepening 
connecting relationship with Christ. There's times you and I are going to be doing what God called us to do, and we're going to look unbusy. And we don't want to look that way, do we? We don't want people to perceive, man, that person's not carrying their weight. First and foremost, we've been called to intimacy with God. When we're pursuing that, ministry pops. I mean, ministry's kicking because it's out of the right flow. It's out of the right energy. It's right out of the power of the Spirit of God as we grow closer to Christ. Focus on Christ. He'll always call you near Him. Intimacy before activity. We must focus on Christ. And so there's a call to intimacy. But Hebrews tells us there's a call to something else. And this call comes only when we focus on Christ. It's this call to immovability. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You and I are part of something eternal. And there's a lot questioning in our culture. And maybe you've asked the question. It might be different words. But it's been something like this. Is there anything, any kind of anchor point that I can attach my soul to that will withstand the storms of life? Is there anything I can anchor my life to that when the winds, the tornadoes, and the hurricanes come, that I won't waver? Is there anything I can truly count on no matter what life throws our way? Yes, it's Christ, because only Christ will not be moved. Because he who calls you is faithful. He'll never fail you. As a church, he'll never fail. The church that focuses on his glory, that focuses on his son and carrying out the good news, we're anchored in that. We don't have to worry about all the numbers and all the stuff if we're focused on his glory and focused on his son. We find that we can become immovable because we're anchored in him. Because we're focused on Him. So what is the redeemed community at Elam anchor on? What do we anchor? Who do we anchor to? Christ. And He's the faithful one. And by the way, if we're to keep going, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, it seems like the author is saying, by the way, as you live this way and as you focus on these things, you're going to need to help each other. You're going to need to consider how to stir on one another towards love and good deeds. Back to the community that sense of community journeying together on these things. Well, what are the effects of a focused community? As we as a community, a redeemed community and individual lives, for that matter, focus on His glory. We keep the main thing the main thing. And we focus on Christ, what He's done and who He is. What are the effects? What will happen if we focus on these things? First and foremost, I believe, a desire for recognition, a desire to be fixed, will be replaced by a desire for God to be glorified. A desire for recognition and this desire to be fixed it will be replaced by a desire for God to be glorified. will be a display of God's glory. Our stories will become about Him. And sure, we yearn for outcomes of trials. And sure, we yearn for, for comfort. But we'll yearn far greater and be far greater jealous for His glory.
I think something else will take place. I think Scripture will be used to stir, not simply study. What do you mean? To the Pharisees, Jesus said, you study the Scriptures because you think them in them are life. But these are the Scriptures, Jesus said, that testify to me. You can study them all you want, but if they're not stirring you to focus upon me, you've missed the meaning of them. You and I use, can use Scripture to stir one another and stir us on to focus. It's Scripture that God uses to keep you and I focused on His glory and His Son. I give you and I very little hope of living a victorious Christian life if we're not in the Scriptures regularly. Because if you're not in the Scriptures regularly, you've subjected yourself to other, all the other voices. Good luck with that one. Because they don't focus on God's glory. They don't focus on His Son. Number three, when we keep the main thing the main thing and we focus on God's glory and His Son, business is replaced by worship. We've no longer defined the church by the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Instead, we're focused on worshiping our great and glorious God. They take backseat to the worship of God. We do not gather on Sunday morning as a preliminary for the rest of your day. This is the main event. The rest of the day is just added on. <laughs> this is what we come for, to glorify God. But let's be honest. Aren't there times we come Sunday morning going, you know what, we got, we got all this great stuff planned the rest of the day. We're going to go boating, we're going to do this, it's gonna be do, let's just get to church, get that done, and then we'll get the main event. You missed it. You missed the main event. <laughs> because we come corporately to glorify and honor our God. Business gets replaced by worship when we keep focused on God's glory and God's Son. And number four, a needed word for the church across the nations. Consumerism, consumerism is replaced by serving God and others. No longer is it about what I can get, but what can I give? How can I live in such a way that when I focus on glorifying God and focus on Jesus Christ, how can I serve him? How can I reach into other people's lives? How can I bring forth and proclaim his name? We need to all, all evaluate those questions. They're significant. But when there's a focus on living for God's glory and following and loving Jesus, our lives are never the same. With this choice to focus our life on God's glory, on His Son, and as a church community, when we focus on God's glory and God's Son, everything gets turned upside down. Everything our culture would view as a good church, or from their view, a healthy church, we've turned upside down because we're focusing on God's glory and God's Son. As a redeemed community, we need to recognize that God has designed His church to be a unique gathering of His people through whom God mirrors His glory. And that happens when we're a focused community. We're focused on his glory and focused on Christ. And I'll close with Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, which seems to sum it up better than I could. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly, 
abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.